You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here. Would love to get the opportunity to meet you if I haven't met you yet. We've got a lot of ground to cover today as we continue our teaching series called Go. Go. It's pointed out to me uh, yesterday that uh, we just wrapped up a teaching series called No Hurry. <laughs> Isn't it like a little bit contradictory to then, you know, I get back from my trip and I'm like, let's go. Uh, but that's right, that's right. Both are important aspects of our faith. This is one of those intention moments. And uh, I think for many of us, the things that we are busy with, the things that we are running around going to do, uh, rarely are the things of God. And I think that's why the, or- I'm glad we didn't do it the other order, right? Uh, that actually there's such an importance in slowing down to focus and allow the most important things, his kingdom and his righteousness, come into clarity in our lives. That's what No Hurry, the teaching series, was about. And then after that, from a place of abiding with Christ, what does Jesus do? He sends us on mission. And uh, we go as a result of, of that relationship. So it works. As the person who designed both those teaching series, I just want to say it was very intentional. And no, I'm, it was totally an accident. Uh, I want to begin today with a question. What if every disciple actually made disciples? Can you say that word, actually? What if every disciple in the world, every disciple of Christ, woke up tomorrow morning, and according to the surveys, there's 2.2 billion Christians on planet Earth. Imagine if every single one of those Christians woke up tomorrow morning and said, you know what, let's do it. Let's, let's actually follow the Great Commission. You know what? For a while, I've been feeling like the Holy Spirit has been drawing me to share my faith with someone, and I've been putting it off. Maybe there's even specific people in every single Christian's mind and heart that God has put on their heart. And they said, you know what? Monday morning, November 14th, 2022, and we all did it. What would happen? I just finished reading a book by Pete Gregg uh, called How to Hear God. And it's a book on the different ways that God speaks to us. But at the end of the book, essentially, he says, now imagine if everyone did what God was telling them to do. This is what he says. He says, by the law of averages, millions would turn to Christ. If two billion of us simply obeyed our Lord's command by sharing the gospel with, say, a couple of people each, And if we were to tell four people, can you show me four? If every one of those 2.2 billion Christians even shared the gospel with four people, theoretically, everyone on earth could hear the gospel in a day, and the Great Commission would be completed. Now, obviously, this is theoretically. It's a hypothetical situation, and you might push back, you know, initially with, well, you know, the Bible isn't translated into every people group's heart language, and I would say, yes, we need to work on Bible translation. And you might say, well, you know, it takes time, sometimes more than one time hearing the gospel, uh, and so it might take time. It might not be all in one day, and so, oh, yeah, of course, sure. And then even then, We know that there were people who met Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, and still rejected him. So not literally everyone on planet Earth. Okay, okay, sure. But here's the point, what this illustrates. There are many disciples, but few disciple makers. There are statistically about 2.2 billion people who would claim the name Christ. They would claim to be disciples of Christ. But there are not many disciples who are actually making disciples. And uh, there's a book in our resource area uh, called How to Save the World. I've seen a bunch of people pick this book up. This is an introductory uh, book to disciple making. I highly recommend it. I've read it myself. It has brand new Barna research from last year on the state of disciple making in the American church. And Alice Matagora 
says this, the author says this, I wonder if the issue isn't so much the idea of disciple making, but an unfamiliarity or lack of exposure to terms like discipling and disciple making and what living them out actually looks like. And I love that. That's, to be honest, she's a little bit more optimistic than I, than I am <laughs> about, well, maybe we just haven't trained or educated or talked about the Great Commission enough. And uh, according to the Barna surveys that they did, 93% of American Christians are familiar, at least somewhat familiar with the word disciple, which I would hope so. It shows up more than 250 times in the New Testament. It's what we are if you're a Christian. The word Christian only shows up at a drop in the New Testament compared to the times that the word disciple, mathetes, the Greek word, uh, is used. And then... There's this other idea, what I want to talk about today, of disciple-making, and 45% of American Christians have never even heard of the word disciple-making. The subtitle of this book is Disciple-Making Made Simple. I believe God is calling our church to be a disciple-making church and to build a culture of disciple-making. And maybe some of you, maybe statistically speaking, 45% of you would say, Josh, that's not even a word. And in one sense, you'd be right, because if you type it into a Word document on your computer, I guarantee it will be flagged as a typo. Microsoft Office is like, disciple making's not a real word. And uh, Microsoft Office doesn't know Greek like I do. So <laughs> Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 is the Great Commission. And Jesus, last week I introduced this idea that Jesus gives us four verbs. Now, technically, if you want to get grammatical about it, there's one imperative, there's one command verb, and the other three are participles, I-N-G words. They're tied, they get their meaning from the verb that they're tied to, okay? And the one verb, the one command, is the word mathetuo, which is the word disciple-making. It's in the Bible. If we were to translate more literally the Great Commission, this is how it would sound. Jesus' words, make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, it's a little bit freed up in our English translations, but this is literally, this is the grammatical way that you would understand the Great Commission. There's one main command. It's the command to make Disciples, which is a one word in Greek. So we could say disciple make by the process in which we make disciples is threefold, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. To help clarify this, I wanna show you our stages of discipleship. Uh, have you seen this chart before? Anyone seen this chart before? This is like my bread and butter, okay? The disciple, the stages of discipleship. And uh, I'm gonna keep, we're, you'll see this many more times. Uh, so I believe every, every person in, on planet Earth fits into one of these five stages of discipleship. You're either pre-faith, you're not a Christian yet, right? Pre-faith, no matter how antagonistic you are towards the gospel, that's how I would describe someone who's not yet a Christian. They're pre-faith. Someone who's new to the faith, recently made a decision. Someone who's young in the faith, that might be someone who hasn't been a follower of Jesus for very long, or maybe they have, but they haven't gotten very deep in their discipleship yet. And then there's someone who's growing in the faith. There's signs of fruitfulness. There's signs of life. There's signs of maturity. And then there's mature in the faith. That's a reproducing kind of disciple. I would say it's a disciple who's making more disciples. Now, here's what I wanna do. That's the, that's the stages, okay? When we talk about discipleship, what we're talking about is you personally progressing through those stages. That's what we're talking about. And you can progress, you can grow in your discipleship through all different ways. You can read books, you can do spiritual practices. I think we have a very strong, by God's grace, a very strong discipleship culture as a church. Our strategy is very simple. Worship gatherings, life groups, spiritual practices. And we try to encourage people to participate in those three spheres. And when you're in an environment that caters itself to maturity, you will begin to mature, right? This is all kind of review. I wanna show you something new though, because that's discipleship. It's when you 
are growing. Here's what disciple making is. I wanna show you how the Great Commission fits into this. Disciple making is not about your own discipleship, it's about you helping someone else progress through the stages of discipleship. That's what matetuo is, that's what make disciples means. And it could be you helping someone who is pre-faith, someone who's not even a Christian, uh, become a follower of Jesus by sharing the gospel with them or helping someone who's just a little bit further behind you in their maturity and development and Christ-likeness grow in some way. So make disciples refers to the entire process of not helping yourself, but helping who? Just other people, right? That's what it means to make a disciple versus become a disciple. Uh, and the three participles, baptizing, teaching, and going, uh, Bill Hall in his complete handbook to discipleship, which is a little bit more exhaustive than this uh, book, it, he, he, he comes up with these three uh, words that all start with the letter D, so they're easy to remember. And he, he believes that what Jesus is doing is when he's talking about baptizing, he's talking about the very first step in disciple making is deliverance, is sharing the gospel to, with someone to the point where they get baptized into Christ, they become a disciple. That's the mark of becoming a disciple uh, to Jesus Christ. And then the second step in making a disciple is development. That's teaching people to obey everything that Christ commanded us. Now, when we think about teaching, the word mathetes literally could be translated as pupil or learner. But I wanna argue that it's more of an apprentice than we think of a, of a classroom setting. It's a hands-on learning. You want a plumber who's actually put pipes together, not just who's seen diagrams in a book, right? It's not book knowledge, it's hands-on practical life knowledge. That's the kind of teaching that we're learning, we're passing on, we're developing people into apprentices of Jesus who not only can answer the questions in the Bible, they can also know how to pray. They know how to share their faith. They know how to be a godly spouse or a godly parent. They know how to do the life the way that Jesus would do it. And so that's what it means to teach. We're not just teaching facts. We're teaching people to obey Christ in their whole life. And even if a church does the first step, they're seeing lots of people, new conversions, new people coming to Christ. We typically call that evangelism. And then even if they do the second step, they're developing people. And I think that's where God has brought us as a church. Glory to God. We're seeing new people come to Christ and we're seeing people grow in their faith. Often the third step is the one that's neglected. Of after someone has grown into maturity, they are deployed to go and be workers in the harvest. And those disciples go and they make more disciples. Bill Hall, in his complete book of discipleship, says this, the reason disciple-making often fails is that we don't expect it to reproduce. So we will maybe even pour our lives out into discipling members of a life group, let's say, and then at the end of that, we're like, well, have you personally grown? And they're like, yes, I definitely have. It's like, sweet. I guess we'll just keep going to church till the day we die. There's not this, this last step of, well, who are you discipling now? We're not deploying, we're not sending, we're not commissioning. I believe we have a crisis of non-discipleship in the church today. And what I wanna do is I wanna jump into the Bible, uh, 2 Timothy chapter two, if you have your Bibles. And Paul has discipled a young man named, what's his name? Timothy, it's in 2 Timothy, it's right there. Okay, the answer was right there. Okay, 2 Timothy, and uh, this is a letter he writes to his disciple that he has made, Paul discipled Timothy, and I want you to see, as Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus, what Paul is, the expectations that Paul is setting up for his disciple, for what Timothy should do next. 2 Timothy chapter two, starting in the verse two verse, first two verses. You then, my child, notice he refers to him as his child in the faith. Not a biological child, a spiritual child. That's what a disciple is, someone who you are spiritually parenting. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, he's referring to the gospel, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
The idea that Paul introduces Timothy to is this idea of spiritual generations. I wanna show you this progression. He's saying, the faith in Christ that I have, I have entrusted to who? To Timothy. And then he tells Timothy, this isn't just for you you to have faith. I want you to take that faith and entrust it to faithful men, to faithful people. And then those faithful people, you need to tell them when you entrust the faith to them, it's not just for them. Who's it for? He just uses the word others, right? How many generations is that? That's four generations. And Paul expects his disciple making of Timothy to exceed at least to four generations. I don't know if we quite expect the way that we disciple to do that. This idea of spiritual generations creates this kind of family tree for the church. I mean, think about this for a moment. Every follower of Jesus has someone. Can you say the word someone? Someone. Has someone who did that work of entrusting the gospel to them. Now, it might be a preacher, right? They might have heard the gospel from a preacher. It might be a parent. It might be a Sunday school teacher. It might be a friend. It might even be a a group of people. It might be multiple. You know, this person played this role and this person played this role. But everyone has someone. And if you go to that one person you could ask them that question. So who is the person who entrusted the gospel to you? And then you could ask, go find that person. If they're still alive, you could say, well, who's the person who entrusted the gospel to you? And so on and so forth. And that is why there is a church in Boise, Idaho today from 2,000 years ago. Not because church services have done a great job making disciples. It's because people entrusted the gospel to other people generation after generation after generation. That is the Great Commission. Disciples who make disciples. You see this beautifully written in Psalm 145, verse 4. It's a short Bible verse, maybe you would memorize this Bible verse this week. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This is disciple making in the Old Testament. It's the process of generation after generation where sharing about God and who he is and what he has done to the point where that next generation worships that God. And they then pass that on generation after generation. And there's moments in history where it seems like this is happening everywhere you look. Those are moments called revival. And we're at a, we're at a moment right now where I hear a lot of people talking about revival, but I don't hear almost anyone talking about disciple making. Because you see other moments throughout history that are the opposite of revival. We tend to refer to those as moments of decline. I would say those are spiritual dark ages. One of those times is the period of the judges. Joshua was the leader of the Israelites, and they took the conquest of the promised land, and he led and powerfully, and the people were dedicated to God, but then that generation died. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we have this heartbreaking passage that describes the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. It says this, and there arose another, what? Another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And it leads to a period of darkness and decline and a cycle of sin and rebellion in the hearts of the people. The difference between Psalm 145 and Judges 2 is the difference between revival and decline. Which one of those passages do you think we are closer to in the American church today? We're closer to Judges 2. The last two decades, the church has been in steady decline. In the last two years, that decline has taken a a steep dip. And that might sound like bad news to you, and I hear a lot of people kind of ringing the alarm bells of that, but here's what I want to say. The harvest is plentiful. And while we are at a delicate point in the American church today, Based on the amount of disciple-making that is taking place, the church, in any given moment, in any given culture, in any given context, is always one generation away, either from decline or from revival. And we have the opportunity as the church today, in the place, at the time that God has positioned us, to see a return to disciple-making if we're obedient and if we take on Jesus' call to the Great Commission. 
Now, one of the interesting statistics, once again, from uh, Barna Research Group in this book was, and I'm not here to point the finger at anyone, at any generation, but you can actually track this over time, the interest in disciple-making by generation in the American church. Boomers, this is, this is research done last year, so this is the most up-to-date research on this, is if you are a boomer and you're going to church today, odds are every other boomer is interested in disciple-making, 50%. Gen X, it's quite a bit higher, 20% higher, is 70%, seven out of 10. Uh, millennials, the interest in making more disciples is 81%, and Gen Z, which I know the church is bleeding Gen Z out of the church, but those of you who are Gen Z and you're in church today, statistically speaking, almost nine out of 10 of you are hungry for making disciples. You just don't know what to do, because no one discipled you. And so, Here's what I wanna say. If you are here and you're an older Christian, you've been following Jesus for years, maybe you feel like you've had this, you've had this kind of, you know, should I pour into someone who's younger? But I don't, I don't know, even know what TikTok is. <laughs> I don't even know. Craig Groeschel has this great line. He says, if you're not dead, you're not done. And God wants to use you. He wants to use you. And we need, I want you to hear this. Younger Christians need you to talk about how in the world you've been married for four decades. Because possibly, possibly their parents were only married for four years. They need you to share about how you, your spiritual practices and how you get up and pray every day. They need to learn how to volunteer in church. You wanna know what boomers have done for the church? They have volunteered for years in the church. Yeah, that's right. We'll talk about volunteering in a little bit, but. And you need to like share why. Why is that important? Gen Z Christians don't know, right? So there are things that you have that, but you have to be willing to make disciples, to spend time with people, to pour into them, to talk to them. And I would hope if you're an older Christian that you would be, if you go to Hill City Church, at least somewhat interested in that. Would you do that? Would you at least start praying about that, about how God might wanna use you and to pour into people, to lead a group, to mentor younger men and women in Christ? And then if you're a younger Christian, you're hungry. Statistically speaking, in church, you're looking, because you're the ones who are looking around at all your friends who are deconstructing their faith, who are disillusioned, who've been hurt by the church, and you feel like they're unwelcome here. And you almost feel out of place because you are actually the exception with all your friends who grew up in Sunday school with you, and your heart breaks for them. And you're like, am I crazy for still being a Christian? Because I feel like I'm the outlier in my friend group. I wanna tell you this, you are perfectly positioned to reach your generation with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's, I'm gonna be honest with you, it's not going to be Gen X or boomers on campus at Boise State who are gonna reach the college with the gospel. It's you, it's you. And so you've got to get out there and get in the game of making disciples and sharing the gospel with your generation. Amen? Amen. Let's learn a little bit more. We're just scratching the surface on this, okay? Let's learn a little bit more on how we can do this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul will continue. He's going to give us three examples to follow. Verse 3, share in suffering. Is that the message you wanted to hear Sunday morning? (laughs) Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Three examples, a soldier, an athlete, and the farmer. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. There's something we can learn from each of those. The first one is the soldier. Paul tells Timothy, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna learn to suffer like a soldier. Can you say suffer? Suffer like a soldier. Paul's writings are rich with military, uh, military metaphors. 
Paul was the one who talks about faith being a fight, fight the good fight of faith, wage the good warfare. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes about the armor of God and how our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. The moment that you declare your faith in Jesus, the enemy declares war on you. And so we should expect to face opposition and resistance. The kind of things that you post online because you're a Christian might mean that someone would unfriend you, right? Or they might, it might mean the kind of conversations you're willing to engage in, the kind of convictions you're willing to hold. I'm not talking about political. I'm talking about theological convictions that you're willing to hold closely might make Thanksgiving a little uncomfortable this year. If you're open and honest with them, if you're having conversations, because the reality is the enemy attacks those who are actually helping expand the kingdom of light in the world that is darkness. And it's not just Paul's military language. Jesus fully prepared us for this. In John 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He says, a servant is not greater than the master. So think about what they're about to do to me. This is the night before he goes to the cross. He says, think about what they're about to do to me. Don't expect any better treatment than that. Think of what Jesus suffered for you. The crown of thorns, the humiliation, the beating, the mocking, the false accusations, the nails in the hands and the feet, and hanging there for hours and facing the wrath of God, which you and I deserve for our sins. He suffered and died. In John 15, he would talk about love, meaning that he laid down his life for his friends. Why did Jesus suffer? He suffered because he loves you and he cares about you, and he wants you to be forgiven from your sins. And he rose three days later in victory, and he has the power to raise you up into a new life. So I'm here to tell you, if you've never responded to the gospel, that's the gospel. Jesus is the son of God. He died for your sins. He rose again, and he wants to forgive you. But he asks you to receive that gospel by putting your faith in him. And the way Jesus instructed us to do so is to put our faith in him through baptism. It's why Jesus uses it in the Great Commission as the very first starting line for what it means to be a disciple. And I wanna invite you, if you've never been baptized but you believe the gospel, to be obedient to Christ, you can sign up online at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. I'm gonna be preaching a whole sermon on baptism next week. Bring your swim trunks, just saying. You can sign up online. Uh, and you can learn more. We would, but in all seriousness, I would love to walk alongside you in that process of saying yes to Jesus through baptism. The reality is there's so many followers of Christ who have, that you're in, you're part of the family of God, you're a disciple, and yet you look at your life and there's a little bit of a discrepancy between Jesus saying, if the world hated me, it's also gonna hate you, and you're like, I haven't really experienced any kind of resistance. My life as a Christian has actually been comfortable or even beneficial, culturally speaking. And the reality is, if that's your experience, then it's, I just wanna suggest something. I'm not here to shame you for living a life of comfort, but I wanna suggest that it's quite possible that there are potentially areas in your life that you're not fully following Jesus, or there's areas in your life where you're following Jesus, but you're doing so secretly. You're not publicly following Jesus. Maybe there's areas of your life where there's idols that God wants to tear down. When people look at you, they actually see your devotion to something else other than Christ before they see your devotion to Christ. Or possibly you just don't have as many friends in the world as you do friends in church and you've been kind of, you've been kind of you know, boarded up in the walls of the church. And if that's you, I would just encourage you to be a city set on a hill. It's our identity. It's why our name is Hill City Church. Read Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, do not hide. How dare we hide the light of the gospel underneath a basket? We must shine that in the world. Because the moment you get off the couch, when it comes to making disciples and sharing your faith, that's when the enemy attacks. Because why would the enemy attack Christians who are complacent in their faith? He has us exactly where he wants us in the American church, doing nothing, not making disciples, not sharing the gospel with our friends, not actually even really living our faith out in the public space. Why would the enemy attack? The moment that you get in the game of ministry, that's when you're gonna start to see and experience 
resistance. And I know that that word suffer is like so anti-American dream, right? We work so hard to have money so we can have comfort and happiness. And this, there's a deep theology of suffering in scripture. But I wanna, I wanna just ca- cast vision for you for just a moment how when you share in, not just suffering in general, because we don't do this because we wanna suffer, we do this because we wanna follow Jesus. And he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. But when you do that, there's a beauty that comes, there's a joy that comes only through the narrow path, which is difficult and hard. First Peter 4, 13 through 14, Peter writes this to a persecuted church, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. For many Christians, when you're living out your faith and you start to face opposition or resistance for it, many Christians say, what did I do wrong? Well, what am I doing wrong here? And what Peter is trying to tell the church who's experiencing persecution for their faith is he's like, no, 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 no. That's a sign that you're actually doing it right. It's a sign that the spirit of God rests upon you. Many Christians are asking the question, well, what's a sign that the Holy Spirit is truly active within my life? Is it you know, miraculous manifestations? Is it this? Is it that? According to Peter, a sign is that you're so obedient to walking by the Holy Spirit and doing the good works he called you to do that people actually to take notice of you and people who are living in the kingdom of darkness see you as a threat. That's a sign that you're living your faith so evidently that people who are anti-God actually become anti-you because they know, they can tell that you are so close. This doesn't mean we're not loving, right? You understand? This is... We'll talk about this more in the future. But what this means is it means that the suffering that we experience for being a Christian is a sign that the Holy Spirit is genuinely in us and we're, we're walking by the Spirit. And it's also a sign that, is, that there's a promise. If you share in the suffering of Christ, you will also share in the glory of Christ. And that's a beautiful promise. So when you suffer like a soldier, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit is there with you. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna suffer like a soldier. The second example is an athlete. What are we gonna do? We're gonna train like an athlete. Can you say train? Train. We're gonna train like an athlete. If you're reading closely, you'll see that what Paul actually says is he says an athlete must must compete according to the rules. It It isn't that catchy to say we must follow the rules like an athlete. But that's not the only reason why I changed it. In in ancient times, the Olympic was taking place during the time that the New Testament uh, was written. Likely, some scholars believe that the kind of rules that Paul is referring to is not only that they're not cheating, right? Not following the rules. But it's this idea that in order to compete, you must qualify. That you must have like some kind of standard of qualification. Specifically, those who would compete in the ancient Olympics had to swear an oath that they've trained for 10 months in order to be eligible. And it's not that different from the modern Olympics. Uh, I don't know if you were a kid and you were like, I wanna be in the Olympics. You know, I would see all the sports. I really wanted to be a speed skater, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I bought a book, at, or, uh, as a, you know, it's like how to speed skate. And there's a local, there's a legitimately a speed skating club. My dad emailed them and they didn't have enough interest. So they disbanded the club the week that my dad emailed them. So. We will always wonder what could have been. <laughs> but even if you had that dream, you're like, I wanna be an Olympian in this area. Can you just sign up and do it? Yeah. How do you meet the qualifications? You must train. I think that's primarily what Paul is talking about here. Not just be really good at following the rules. He's talking about we must be disciplined like an athlete. Uh, four weeks from today, I will be in Honolulu, hopefully competing in the Honolulu Marathon. Yay! Don't cheer yet. I haven't crossed the finish line. Uh, And I don't talk about this a ton, but I've been training for three months for this race. And it's, I mean, you got to train if you're going to run 26.2 miles. And I uh, went to the Philippines for a couple weeks. I, I didn't really train when I was over there. Didn't have a lot of time. There's this whole like typhoon thing. It was, anyways, crazy. 
And so I got back, and it was, it's a full 50 degrees colder here in Boise than it is in the Philippines. And I have a training plan, and I'm usually very disciplined, and I follow it, but I hadn't been following it for two weeks, so I'd kind of gotten relaxed in my training. It's very cold here. It was that Wednesday, two weeks ago, when it was like sleet, you know? And I grew up in Alaska, so I'm very used to the cold. But then not the wet and the cold, and I was like, ah, and I'm literally sitting in my car outside the Boise High Track, and I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to run around the track a bunch of times really fast, I'm like, ah, and I'm sitting there and I'm having a crisis. I'm like, is the entry fee refundable? <laughs> Maybe there's still time. And I'm like, snap out of it, you know? Because, <laughs> and with that show, and I'm not even like, I'm not a pro athlete, I'm not trying to say anything like that, but I can tell you this, when Paul says train like an athlete, he's not talking about some fair weather, casual, yeah, I do 5K, you know, fun run, or I do, he's talking about we've gotta be disciplined. There's a difference between someone who has a goal in their training and someone who's what's called a fair weather athlete. Maybe, maybe you're a fair weather athlete. And you can check my Strava. I did the workout two weeks ago. I did it, back on the train. And the reality is, when it comes to our faith, following Jesus takes practice. It takes discipline. I know we call the spiritual, we call them spiritual practices. Classically, they're called spiritual disciplines. The word discipline is not as fun, so I call them spiritual practices, but it's that same idea. You're gonna wake up and have a goal to read scripture consistently, and you're not gonna have time tomorrow to do it. It's not gonna be convenient. Or, or you're gonna have this goal. Well, before bed, I'm gonna you know, spend quiet time before bed. You're like, but the newest episode just got released, right? Or you maybe have a goal. Like one, of the, one discipline is to actually even like be here and worship together with other Christians. But then like the snow is just getting good up on the mountain. Or in the summertime, the weather's good, and the lake, and the, you know, whatever. And I, I'm not here to, like, add guilt or shame to any of, you know, you don't get a gold star for church attendance or anything like that. But here's what I, if you're serious about following Jesus, you'll be serious about your spiritual disciplines. And even when it's raining outside, even when the conditions aren't perfect, you will still find a way to be disciplined, spending time with God. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3, 13 through 14. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining. Some of us want our faith to be so easy, but there's so many of these words like straining and striving and working forward to what lies ahead. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. The, the only thing that can save us is the work that Jesus has done, but growing in maturity takes effort. It takes work. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize for the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. You wanna know one of the best things that you can offer someone that you are discipling is a spiritually mature and emotionally healthy version of yourself. One of the best things I've been able to pass on to people that I have discipled is simply modeling a disciplined rule of life. A rule of life is a training plan, but for spiritual growth. This is how much I'm gonna read each week. This is when I'm gonna pray each week. This is my Sabbath routine. This is when I fast. That, you know, I go to church every week, but I'm paid to, right? But it's like, you know, there, it's those kind of things where it's your, your own spiritual practices and disciplines. And if you, are, if, you, if you are keeping those and practicing those, then you have something that you can pass on to someone that you are discipling. We're gonna suffer like a soldier. We're gonna train like an athlete. And the third one is we're gonna work like a farmer. You say work? Work. work. We're gonna work it like a farmer. Farmers, and in the text, it says work hard. Okay, so this isn't like, I have, I have a strawberry patch. I'm not a farmer, okay? And uh, I, don't, I don't do hardly anything. But the strawberry, it's the Lord that causes the growth. And uh, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And what Paul is discussing here with the church in Corinth, he's talking about how he was the one who did that step one of disciple making. He sowed the seeds. 
And people were coming to Christ and they were getting baptized. And then he left. He was a missionary. He would travel around from area to area. And then Apollos came in and he didn't do the initial sharing of the gospel. He did the ongoing work of teaching. That's his next step, right? So he's teaching people about God. He's training them. He's discipling them. And then there's this this dispute. Well, who's better? right, in the church. Well, I really like Paul. Well, I like Apollos, right? And they kind of have this fight and this squabbling, and what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to say, listen, don't give us the credit, don't give us the glory, because yes, I planted Apollos Waller, but who caused the growth? God caused the growth. And this is very important for us in understanding what it means to make more disciples, is it's hard work, first of all, to pour your life into another person, It's gonna take time, it's gonna take effort. You're gonna have to wake up early if you're meeting in the mornings, you're gonna have to do the reading if you're going through a book. Like it's work, right? Not strawberry patch work, we're talking Idaho farm, potato farmer kind of work, okay? And, And it may even be heartbreaking at times when the fruit that you had hoped for and prayed for isn't evident. I can tell you this, I've discipled many young men in my life some of whom are no longer even claimed to follow Christ anymore. And it's heartbreaking in those moments. And you can't take it personally. If the first person that you disciple decides to walk away from God, you're gonna wonder like, what did I do wrong, right? Was it me? (laughs) And you have to kind of take the outcome of that relationship and separate yourself and your identity as a child of God from that. Because there's, I can also tell you there's, there's other people that I've discipled who've go, gone on to, into ministry, on the mission field, and I know are gonna be godly spouses, godly parents, and, and hopefully they will be that, those faithful men who will pass it on to others, right? And think about a farmer for a moment. The farmer is gonna work really hard. The field, the seeds, the watering, and yet there's also that waiting and that praying and I hope it rains this year. I hope it rains this season. And that's how it is when we make disciples of others. Look at what Paul would later on go on to say in that same letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the what? The work of the Lord. There's work to be done. There's a harvest. The busiest time for a farmer is... The harvest. Jesus described the church age as the age of harvest. And who are the workers? It's you and me. There's work. It's work, right? So we've got to work like a farmer. But it's discouraging at times when there's not as much fruitfulness, when there's resistance. But he says this, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen? So we've got to work like a farmer, but we've got to wait like a farmer and pray like a farmer. And we've got to trust in God to cause the growth like a farmer. Alice Matagora says this in her book. She she says, we can't speed up our own spiritual growth and transformation, much much less someone else's. No program or event can replace time and relational investment in another person. And that's what we're talking about. When I, when I, when I say we've, been, we've, we've grown as in our discipleship culture, but we need to grow in our disciple-making culture, is we have to be less reliant on the programs of the church to make disciples, and we've got to get back to the original Great Commission, which is people-making disciples, relational investment. So I want to give you four people to look for, okay? First one is you're going to look for someone to disciple you. Everyone say, Look. You know, look for someone to disciple you. It might, you might not find this person right away, uh, but I would say this is especially you if you're on the newer, pre-new or young in the faith. You really need to look for someone, not just listen to sermons. It's great that you listen to sermons or read books, but look for a person to disciple you. Statistically, only 19% of all Christians have had that person disciple them. So only one in five Christians, okay, probably in this room, have ever been discipled by a person. I've had uh, the the benefit of, I could could probably list a half dozen men who have discipled me over the years. And uh, I attribute much of the progress in my own spiritual growth and maturity to 
actual mentors who discipled me, not just to books that I've read or things that I've learned along the way. So this is why life groups are a key aspect of our discipleship strategy, is we look at every single one of our life group leaders as disciple makers. So if you're not in a life group, and you're like, well, where in the world am I gonna find someone? Join a life group. We will find them for you. We will put you, we'll place you with a life group. You can sign up on a connect card today. Or if you know someone, you feel like God's been already preparing a relationship, you can find a mentor, someone who meets with you on a more of a a one-on-one or one-on-two basis. So you're gonna look for someone to disciple you. The the next person you're gonna look for is this is if you're ready to get in the game of disciple making. Look for someone lost. Look for someone who's lost. Because it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been a disciple, if the person is in that pre-faith stage, then you could share the gospel with them, right? When somebody might say, well, you know, I only just got baptized at the fall, like church in the park baptism. I've only been a follower of Jesus for a month. Well, that's one month more than someone who's not a follower of Jesus at all. I came across a statistic in my study this week that completely blew my mind. I'm not even sure if I believe it, but I'll share it with you. From Lifeway Research, they looked at the percentage of people who were brought to Christ by another person, and they, they, they found that 94% of people who were brought to Christ by another person, the person who brought them to Christ had been a Christian for less than two years. That's insane to me. And so if you, if you have that hesitation, well, I don't know if I'm mature enough. I don't know if I've been following Jesus long enough. These are your prime, this is your prime time right now. <laughs> that first couple years of, of following Jesus, there's a fire of evangelism. I've seen it time and time and time again. And, and I would just encourage you with the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, John 4, 29 through 30. Uh, Jesus has a conversation with her. She tries to challenge his theology. Not a great idea, but then... She goes back to her her village, and this is what happens. She tells the people, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Here's her pitch, okay? This is her evangelistic pitch. Can this be the Christ? She's not even certain about it. And they went to the town and were coming to him, and many people believed in Jesus from that town. She's been not even quite following Jesus for 15 minutes, She's not 100% sure. She doesn't make the good confession that Peter made. This is the crisis on the living God. Her confession is, is it? And God uses her to share the gospel with all those people. And there's this drop-off, though, that happens about two years in where many Christians say, well, I'll leave it to the professional evangelist to share my faith. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for two days, for two months, for two years, or for 20 years. God wants to use you to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ yet. Would you do that? Would you look for someone who's lost? And I say look for because this is is an ongoing, having the eyes of your heart open to where the Holy Spirit is leading you. The third person we're gonna look for is look for someone younger. Godly parenting is disciple making. And I'm here to tell you, if you have children living at home, those are your first disciples, okay? Those are your first disciples. I'm a pastor, and I view my number one ministry as discipling my daughters. Before discipling any of you in this room, that the the best, the first fruits of my disciple-making energy has to be in teaching my children to pray, telling them about who God is, teaching them about Jesus, right? Pat, entrusting the faith that my parents entrusted to me to the next generation. Where's the next generation? If you have kids living at home, it's in your home. So look for the people who are younger than you. So Paul discipled Timothy, but long before Paul was ever on the scene, guess who discipled Timothy? 2 Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Can we get an amen for godly moms? Come on. You can show that same chart. Lois, Eunice, Timothy, faithful men, others, right? Paul's not just the hero of that story. That's a story God has been telling long before Paul was part of the picture. Through godly parenting. And I'm just here to challenge you to get intentional with your kids. 
Teach them about Jesus. Pass it. You gotta trust the outcome. I'm not here to heap guilt or shame. And sometimes it doesn't always go as you want, right? I'm not here to say any of that, but I'm here to say, it's up to you. Your first disciples, if your children live at home, are your kids. Now, if you have kids who are out of the house or maybe you don't have kids, you can still look for younger people. We have an awesome family ministry. You hear the bumping sounds beneath us. That's the kids' worship. You hear the screaming from the other room. That's the youth ministry going on. And I'm here to tell you that you can be a youth leader. You can be someone who pours into kids in the kids' classrooms. Not every area to serve at Hill City Church is a disciple-making area. And I don't want to minimize any area to volunteer, to lead, to serve here. They're all important. But two of the areas that I can tell you that I can guarantee are disciple-making areas are being a kids or a youth leader. Those are the people who are helping disciple your kids. And I would just invite you to sign up. You can sign up on a card and you can uh, become a leader in one of our family ministry classrooms today. The fourth person you're gonna look for is you're gonna look for someone younger in the faith. They don't have to necessarily be younger than you. You just have to be further along them in that process of discipleship. So if you wanna, if you wanna do that in a structured way, you can become a life group leader. Uh, there's actually a new life group leader lunch on December 2nd. Uh, you can talk to Jake, our associate pastor. He oversees our life groups. And you don't even have to know necessarily what you're doing, but he will train you, okay? Right? Yeah, he will. <laughs> He'll train you to be a life group leader, but you need, to be, you need to be able to disciple someone. You need to be mature, growing or mature in the faith. Or you could become a mentor to someone. If there's been someone that God has put on your heart, you can ask them, you can say, hey, would you wanna meet for coffee with me and I'll share my faith with you. I wanna close with just this quote from Alice in her book. She says this, you can always disciple one person. Can you show me one? I know you showed me four earlier, but would you just disciple one? You can always disciple one person. So let me ask you that question. What, is, what if every disciple, 2.2 billion Christians in the world, spent this next year, I'm not here to say it's a microwave, fast food version, spent this next year discipling one person, what would happen? Would we see renewal and revival in our time? I believe if every disciple of Christ made one disciple this year, the soldier would win the victory, the athlete would get the prize, and the farmer would receive the harvest. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. At the end of his life, I don't think Paul had any regrets for his ministry. He gave it all, he left it all in the field. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then he says this, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.